and radio listeners, we're very grateful today to have Pastor Trudy White bring the message. This is one of her messages in the series, Christ's Revelation of Things to Come. And for our radio listeners, I want you to know that Pastor Trudy White is the minister of our Markham Village Church of the Nazarene up in Markham. Pastor Trudy, why don't you tell folks uh, your exact location up there, the address, and uh, how they can get there, because for our radio listeners up in the Markham, Unionville area, if you do not have a church home, I want to strongly encourage you to visit and worship and get blessed by Pastor Trudy White's uh, wonderful messages and the marvelous times of worship they have up there with her church family. Pastor Trudy, go ahead and tell them. Okay, we're located at 218 Main Street, Unionville. I have no idea where the, why there are th uh, two Main Streets in Markham, but we're not Main Street, Markham, which is Highway 48. We're Main Street, Unionville, right at the corner of Main and Carlton, and our services are on Sunday at 11. So, radio listeners, I strongly encourage you to go and visit this wonderful congregation that Pastor Trudy pastors. And now... Here is today's message. Hello, folks. I hope you've had a good day. Last week, we looked at Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. And our lesson uh, from that church is that good works are not enough. We have to maintain a passionate love for Christ. Today, we will look at letters to some other churches, and in doing so, uh, we will just try to capture uh, the major lessons from each of these churches. So let's start in chapter 2. We are looking at uh, the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is actually called Izmir, I-Z-M-I-R, today. And like all the other churches, it's located in modern-day Turkey. If you traveled from Ephesus to Smyrna, you would have covered a distance of 35 miles to the north, entering the city by what was called the Ephesian Gate. It was a seaport city like Ephesus and a wealthy city. It was also a center for pagan worship. In this city, the Christians faced great opposition and persecution. Smyrna, I, don't, I didn't um, leave a blank for this, but you can write it in if you wish. Smyrna means myrrh, as in the burial spice, which apparently smells wonderful, but the smell only comes out uh, when the spice is actually crushed. So just like the spice, when the church was crushed or persecuted, they revealed something wonderful to the world. And that is, they revealed Jesus Christ by the way they responded to the persecution they were under. Initially, Christians were thought to be part of the Jewish religion, and they received protection from Rome. However, as time went on, the Jewish religious leaders felt it necessary to distinguish Christianity from Judaism. And Christians were no longer welcomed in the synagogues and now faced severe persecution. The church in this city struggled against two hostile forces, 
a Jewish population strongly opposed to Christianity, and a non-Jewish population that was loyal to Rome and supported uh, emperor worship. So they were sort of caught between a rock and a hard place, a no-win situation. Persecution and suffering were inevitable in an environment like this. And Graham Lott says, when the Roman emperor Domitian declared himself to be God, he demanded to be worshiped and the Christians refused. He therefore commanded that they be burned at the stake, crucified on crosses and thrown to the lions. All the sufferings experienced by the first century believers was summed up in the experience of the believers in Smyrna. They faced insane madness in their daily lives as they sought to live for Christ while at the same time coming under persecution. So as I was thinking about that, I ask you this question. Are you facing any kind of trials and challenges because you're a Christian? Not because you rub people the wrong way or you tick them off. That doesn't count. That's on you. But are you facing any kind of trials or challenges because you, were, you are a Christian? Do people even know that you're a Christian? Does your faith make a radical a difference in the way you live? And can your faith be seen in action every day? Christ writes to the church at Smyrna to encourage them and to let them know that he sees and he knows of their situation. This church is one of two. The other is a church at Philadelphia. This church is one of two where there is no condemnation against them. They were not chastised by the Lord for anything. This is a letter of encouragement to the church. Chapter, uh, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. How does Jesus reveal himself to the believers at Smyrna? He, from this verse, he reveals himself as the eternal one and one who identifies with their suffering. Right? So he identifies as the eternal one and one who identified with their suffering. He knows what it's like to be hated by the world. So he was telling the believers to take heart. He overcame the world, and therefore, he would help them to overcome as well if they remain faithful. If they remain faithful, they would be victorious as well. What does Christ know about this church? Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, Yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What was the condition of these believers? They were afflicted and they were poor. There is no satisfying answer to the problem of human pain and suffering. We don't know why some suffer and others don't. Why some have and have plenty, and others don't have, and some even live in abject poverty. And it's certainly a tremendous test of our faith that the faithful are severely persecuted and may even be in desperate need and want while the wicked seem to be prospering. But one thing 
uh, we know for sure, that gives us comfort in the midst of any suffering that we would have to go through, is that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, understands because he was in the flesh. And because of that, he experienced what we experience and so much more. He knows what it feels like to suffer in a way that we never will. He's been there. And therefore, that should encourage us. That should comfort us to know that he actually understands. He empathizes with us and therefore he will help us. Jesus knew these believers were poor, but they were not just poor. They were living in abject poverty. This was probably so because they were robbed of their possessions and property when they were persecuted. Their property was seized and many had no personal resources, no personal income. And yet, even in the midst of their affliction, even in the midst of their poverty, Jesus says to them that they are rich. Why? Because they held on to the faith and to what was eternally important. These believers were also being slandered by, as John says, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There was great opposition from the Jews, those who were Jews by birth, but probably not practicing their faith. Jesus is telling us that believers need not fear death because it will only result in their receiving the crown of life. You know, Satan may harm our bodies, um, but he can actually do no harm to our spiritual lives. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus wanted them to remain faithful, and he promised to help them, and he promised a reward. And he told them that persecution would only last for a time. So therefore, don't be afraid, hold on. He was in control. But he says here, it would only last for 10 days. What does that mean, 10 days? Did it literally mean their persecution would only last for 10 days? We don't really know. But one commentator says that there were 10 periods of persecution known by their Roman emperors during the Smyrna period. It has been suggested it's a time period, but not necessarily 10 days. Further, it's been suggested that it represents 10 waves of persecution between 100 to 300 AD, where six million Christians were killed. Whatever um, 10 days means, the one thing we can be assured of in the scheme of eternity, it's short. It is limited. And isn't that good to know? Now, mind you, it might last our entire lifetime. It might take us to the point of death. But in the scheme of eternity, it is short and there's a limit to the persecution. Now, the interesting thing is that the result of persecution on these believers caused the gospel to spread around the world. It also did a second thing, and that was to reveal um, those who had a genuine faith. 
because those who had a genuine faith in Christ, they stood the test. Now, maybe God allows us to experience trials in order to get us to that point of acknowledging him and witnessing for him. You know, how many times, well, I don't know you, but uh, the pastors would know it more often, how many times we go to visit people in the hospitals who are going through some very trying times, and they're the ones busy witnessing to the nurses and to the doctors and, you know, to anybody who they come across. So sometimes that's what trials can do to us if we are just completely surrendered to the Lord. It sort of, it sort of bolsters our courage and, and, and pushes out us into the world and expands our testimony. On the other hand, it also will determine if we have a genuine faith or not. If your faith is genuine, then you're going to stand firm to the bitter end. If not, you're going to find all sorts of excuses as to why you can't follow Jesus, such as it's too hard. The gospel and the Bible, it's irrelevant for the modern world. After all, all ways lead to God and to heaven. So you don't have to be restricted by some archaic manual and teaching. I've believed in Jesus all my life, and he didn't rescue me. He didn't deliver me. He didn't provide for me. He didn't give me that promotion. He let a loved one die. So really, it makes no difference. Look at all the violence going on in the world. Where is God? And on and on and on we can go making excuses because we are like the seed Sown, sown on the ground, that when the thorns of persecution arise in our lives, they, they choke out our faith. Or we're like the seed sown on the rocky ground that, that doesn't have much root, and therefore we have no substance, no depth, and so we can't stand when the trials come our way. So I want to ask you, how is your faith? Is there something you need to develop within your own spiritual walk and relationship with Christ in order to increase the depth of your faith. Amen. What trials or challenges are you facing? And how are you coping? Are you afraid? Jesus said, do not be afraid. Take God's peace, maintain your testimony, and leave the consequences to him. See, unlike the church at Ephesus, which did not remain faithful and eventually ceased to exist, this church at Smyrna heeded the words of Christ in this letter. They remain faithful and vibrant. The city has survived the centuries, and the Christian church still exists in Smyrna today. This letter reminds us also of a very important thing, very applicable for today to pray for the persecuted Christians around the world. And as I think about that, I think pray for those, especially in places like Egypt, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Malaysia, China, and so forth. It has been said that more Christians have been killed in the 20th century than every previous century before. Isn't that something? In any of the previous centuries combined, so, remember to pray for our brothers and sisters under persecution 
and pray for ourselves, inviting the Holy Spirit to help us to stand and remain faithful to the end. In North America, we're a bit soft, a bit soft. And so therefore, we really need the empowering of the Holy Spirit so that, you know, when a little bit of persecution come, like a, like a little pinprick on our finger, we don't, you know, get up in arms and, and run away crying, but that we are going to get our roots deep down into the Word and deep down into Christ so that we can stand. G.K. Chesterton noted that Jesus promised three things when we trusted him, that we would be completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. I guess so, right? The hope given to us from this letter is that when we overcome our fear of suffering for Christ, here's the good news. One day we will be permanently, eternally, totally, personally delivered from all pain, suffering, rejection, criticism, and persecution. The Lord Jesus himself will wipe away all of our tears, and we will live in his presence forever. Isn't that wonderful? We may have to take up our cross daily, but the resurrection follows the cross, and the crown follows the resurrection. Amen? The next church, the next letter goes to the church in Pergamum, which again is north of Smyrna. The word Pergamum means objectionable marriage. It's not on the screen, but Pergamum means objectionable marriage. In this case, a marriage between church and state. Pergamum was well known in its day, and it was a prosperous city with somewhere between 120,000 to 200,000 people. This was a very pagan city. They worshipped at least six different gods with temples to each god. But the most prominent pagan worship was emperor worship. And the temple of the imperial worship sat high on a rock citadel so that everyone could see it. Even though these Christians believed in Jesus, they were allowing themselves, listen carefully, to assimilate into the culture around them by participating in certain pagan rituals, often in order to maintain their jobs and their income, as well as in order to avoid persecution. So let's think about our personal lives. Are we compromising our faith in any way in order to maintain popularity, a good grade, friendship, a job, a retirement package, a reputation, a comfortable lifestyle. Are our lives different because of our faith in Christ, or are we straddling the fence? You know, it's always good to stop every once in a while and do a good, careful self-examination. Do we have one foot in the church and one foot in the world? You know that's not possible, right? We can't serve two masters. We have to choose. It's either Christ or it's the world, but the choice is ours. So how does Jesus address the, the leader of the church in Pergamum and, in essence, the congregation and us? Verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. 
You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual idolatry. Likewise, you also have have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever have ear, has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So to this church, Jesus identifies himself as having a sharp two-edged sword, which is the word of God. The word pierces and divides. And Jesus reminds the church that he will deal with them through his word. For us, we have the Bible. It is what God wants us to know about him. It is what God wants us to know about how to live, the standard that we are to live by. And it is by that word in the Bible that he's going to hold us accountable and by which he will judge us. So what is Christ judging this church for? One word, compromise. That is what he's judging this world uh, church for. You see, in today's, it's very interesting, in today's modern culture, compromise is not seen as a negative thing, but rather a positive it is often viewed that we need to compromise in order to be inclusive and accepting and tolerant, and that would sometimes mean including putting our faith and our beliefs on the back burner, so to speak, in order to not offend others of different faiths. And we need to compromise and not make our beliefs public or a standard for anybody else, because after all, one's faith is a very personal thing. And so don't come into my space and bring your religious beliefs and try to force them on me. But that's the world. Christ tells us through this letter that compromise really is a bad word. It's bad action. It derails our faith, and it will be judged. Pergamum had many temples devoted to idol worship, but their main worship was to the emperor of Rome. In this atmosphere, completely adverse to Christian testimony, was situated a little church to which Christ addressed this letter, and they were compromising. You see, they, they tried to hold on to their beliefs and faith, and yet their actions included pagan rituals. This church needed to be reminded, and we need to be reminded, that as Christians, our behavior, actions, and words should make us distinct from the world around us. Just because the world is doing something doesn't mean we need to go along and do it as well. Amen. We can't compromise our faith. I don't believe, personal opinion, I don't believe the church or Christians in North America are really distinct from the world. I don't believe it. Just think about it for a minute. The rate of divorce among Christians is no different from among non-Christians. The percentage of those within the church 
who view pornography as just as high as outside the church. Christians are living together and it just seems to be acceptable. They're engaging in premarital sex and no problem with that. They have addictions just like those who are not Christians. They struggle to love, they struggle to forgive, to show respect, to exhibit self-control, to be selfless, to be content, to have meaning and purpose, and even to experience peace. There is fighting, there's holding grudges, and sometimes simply a bad attitude. And I look at this and I say, how strange and how sad because it shouldn't be because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit working in us so when we submit to his work within our lives, he transforms us and he makes us different and he makes us new and, and he just changes us so radically that we should not be living like the world and yet we are. So then I ask myself, well, why? And it has to be because we have not completely surrendered our lives to Christ. Oh, yes, you know, we have accepted, we've repented of our sins, we've accepted Christ as Savior, but we've stopped there. We haven't given him full control. Because if we did, none of those behaviors and attitudes that I mentioned before would be in our lives. I just want you to think about that. We are compromising in our behavior, in our actions, in our words, even in our motives and thoughts, just like the Christians in Pergamum. And so we need to hear this message. The NIV commentary says, in short, when we value what the world does instead of valuing the kingdom, we forfeit our role as witnesses for Christ's kingdom in the world. Did you hear that? If we are no different from the world, we have no witness to the world. Too much of Western Christianity has become indistinguishable from our culture. Too much of our evangelistic effort geared towards persuading the world that we are acceptable. Why? Because we're just like them. If we affirm what the world affirms, or more often, live as the world does, to what then are we inviting them in conversion that's different from what already exists? Why would they want to become Christians if we're no different from them? Will we do an honest and careful examination of our lives and truly seek for God to point out any area in our lives where we may be compromising. And don't be proud and go, great message. It's for that person over there. All right? No. Don't be proud. Go, God, what do you need me to hear that I can surrender and submit and just come under your total control? If we repent of it, seek his forgiveness, he'll grant us that forgiveness and restore us. The church in Pergamum was commended for holding fast to their faith. That's great. They did not deny Christ. Yet at the same time, they had a problem compromising. 
a bit like the church today. We believe in Christ, one foot in the church, one foot in the world. Within this church were two groups of people who called themselves Christians but did not measure up. One espoused the teachings of Balaam, and quite simply, this group was liberal on sin and enticing others to sin. It was the promotion of adultery mixed with pagan worship, and the church had allowed idolatry into their worship. The other espoused the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and this group believed a person's spirit is inherently good and a person's flesh is inherently evil. They also believed that it didn't matter what you did in the flesh because sin in the flesh had no effect on the spirit. In essence, what they were saying is, you know, live it up. Immorality in the body doesn't matter. And so that kind of tickled the ears of, of others going, sounds good to me. They liked the idea of loose living, but Jesus was not pleased. He knew that a little compromise would eventually corrupt a lot of people. The same thing is actually happening today. You know, people are believing in Christ, but they say, you've got one life, live it up. Enjoy your life, do what you please, and you could still come to church on Sunday and ask for forgiveness. Right? But that compromising, if people keep it up on a regular basis, I believe they will come to a point in the cycle of sinning, repenting, and sinning again, doing the same things, where they will eventually have their hearts hardened, they will no longer see any desire to repent, they will drift away from God and eventually come under his judgment. With this rebuke and condemnation, what do believers at Pergamum, what were they called to do? Simple, repent. Same for us. They and us are given a warning and a promise in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I give some of, of the hidden manna. I will also give each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. When you hear the word manna, your mind event goes back to, right? The Israelites in the desert, right? The warning is to hear the message and allow the Holy Spirit to help us to be victorious and overcomers with the promise of a reward in heaven. The meaning of hidden manna, it's really just simply spiritual food, that which sustains us and nourishes us in our relationship with Christ. It is the word of God and it is our relationship with Christ. The possible meaning of the white stone with a new name, well, in the courts of law, uh, in courts of law being given a white stone is thought to represent acquittal in contrast to being given a black stone, which would indicate condemnation. The giving of a white stone to the believer is the indication that he or she has been accepted or favored by Christ. In addition to receiving the stone, a new name written on the stone is promised to them. Some regard this as a personal name indicating our enrollment in heaven. May we be challenged 
to not compromise, not to assimilate with our society, to repent when necessary, and to stand faithful in our faith and testimony so that one day we too will receive our reward. And the last church we'll look at tonight is uh, the fourth letter to the churches, and this is to the church in Thyrathyra. Thyrathyra means continual sacrifice, continual sacrifice. Thyrathyra was a working man's town, and many trade guilds or unions, but guilds were there, you know, for cloth making, um, dyeing of the fabric, pottery, and so forth. This city was um, just particularly secular with no focus on any um, particular religion. Thyra Thyra was the home of Lydia. You remember that name, Lydia, the businesswoman converted by the Apostle Paul, who then helped him to plant the church in Philippi. The town itself was so obscure and the church was so small that scholars wonder why it was sing, uh, singled out for attention by our Lord. But his attention to Thyrathyra is a solemn warning to those who may think that their lives are so small, so obscure, so insignificant that they can get away with any sin. That, you know, God's too busy elsewhere, he wouldn't notice. There is no record in scripture of any evangelistic effort to the city of Thyrathyra. It may be that the gospel was first brought to Thyrathyra by or through Lydia in her role as a seller of purple cloth, which was very expensive and in great demand. And so as she was going about her business, doors may have opened uh, for her to uh, witness to her clients and therefore Christianity came to this small town. This is the longest and severest of the letters to the seven churches. It's a warning to all of us to be aware of sin and do not let it enter our lives because Christ will deal with sin and with us ever so severely if we do not repent. Verse 18 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyrathyra write, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. You will recall that I explain that this uh, description of Jesus is symbolic of his divine judgment. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyrathyra, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. 
He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I, as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus identifies himself as having penetrating insight into the lives and the activities of the Christians at Thyra Thyra, just like he does in our lives. Nothing escapes him. This can either be a comfort to us or it can cause us great anxiety. It all depends on how we're living. We are reminded in verse 18 that Jesus will judge his church, meaning that he will judge those who bring evil into the church in the name of Christianity. Jesus, first of all, commends this church. And what does he commend them for? Well, there's a long list of things that he commends them for. They were doing well. He commended them for their deeds or their works. He commended them for their love, their faith, their service, the fact that they were persevering through a severe persecution and hardship, and they were doing even more than when they first became Christians. And this is a tremendous commendation. They loved Jesus and they showed this love through their deeds, through their words. Some of them were actually growing in their faith. They served others. They had lots of good works which testified to their community about their relationship with Christ. They were known for their love which produced good deeds. Isn't that wonderful? They persevered. Uh, you know, this was a time of severe persecution and the church did not give up. And I hear about all that from this congregation in Thyra Thyra and I go, wow, good for them. And in addition to the fact that they didn't give up, they were doing more and more for the Lord, which should be our goal to grow in our faith and to do more, to reach more people and to increase in our good works. So after all that, what was the church lacking? What were they missing and what got Christ angry at them, ready to bring down judgment on them? Here's what. They tolerated a leader in the church, symbolically named Jezebel, who was misleading them and leading them into idolatry and sin. John may have used the name Jezebel from the Old Testament, Jezebel, who tried to combine the worship of Israel's God with the worship of idols and who did everything in her power to kill off God's priests and prophets. He may have used that name to symbolize the kind of evil that this woman in this congregation was promoting. In addition, uh, she was um, also, as she was participating in the church, she was also a priestess in the pagan temple. Um, and she was involved in fortune telling. You know, I have to ask myself, then why was she allowed to be involved in the church? And not only involved, but actually leading uh, the church. Perhaps she was gifted, articulate, attractive, with a very charismatic personality. Apparently, she had convinced the majority of the Christians in the church that if they were going to win friends to Christ, they had to be like their friends. That argument is still used today by non-Christians to convince Christians to compromise their faith. 
Ever had that argument presented to you? You know, she convinced them that they had to be inclusive. And doesn't that sound pretty much like today? She convinced them that they had to go where their friends went, dress like their friends dress, talk like they talk, entertain like they entertain, listen to uh, the music, eat the food, drink the drinks that their friends did. And I expect that she argued that if you separate from the world instead of compromising and becoming like the world, that you will offend the world. And then how will you get those unbelievers to listen to your presentation of the gospel? Persuasive, but wrong. Whatever her tactics were, Jezebel led the entire church into sin. Which reminds me, and I've said before, just because someone is likable, charismatic, eloquent, or in leadership doesn't mean we accept everything they say as gospel. Our job as believers is to test everything, make sure it lines up with the scriptures, and it glorifies Christ. The Lord's anger and his letter were actually not addressed to this leader. This letter is not addressed to Jezebel. This letter was directed to those who not only tolerated her, but who listened to her, supported her, and followed her. Did you hear that? You can't just blame the leader. We have to take responsibility for our actions in accepting a person's teaching and in allowing ourselves to be misled. If we don't know the scripture, we're not going to know if what is being spoken to us is the truth or not. And I believe that's what's gotten people in problems over the years as, as they've gotten themselves caught up and drawn into a cult by some charismatic leader because they didn't know their scripture, so they weren't able to compare what was being taught to what was in the word. What was the specific sin that Jezebel led the church in Thyatira into? Sexual immorality and impurity. In today's society, we're so laissez-faire about sexuality and so accepting of sin in this area. You know, people are living together outside of marriage. People have accepted alternative lifestyles. People have multiple sexual partners. That all seems to be acceptable now. That is true, but acceptable to whom? It may be acceptable to the world, but it has never been and never will be acceptable to God. So don't make the mistake of thinking that because you live in a different generation and time from that of the church in Thyatira, that you're under a different set of laws uh, from God or that you are exempt from God's laws. We're not. His word stands firm, and it's for yesterday, it's for today, and it's for tomorrow. His standards and requirements for holiness and purity, uh, they have not changed because God does not change. So how does the Lord deal with us when we have sinned? Just like he dealt with this woman leader, Jezebel, he gave her an opportunity to repent. And isn't that what we're seeing in every single letter? If we have sinned, repent. If she and her followers failed to do so, she would experience the intense suffering of their deeds. You see, however, here's the good news. Not everyone in the church was bad. 
And Jesus recognized that the rest of believers who were faithfully serving him were doing so under some very difficult circumstances. So he would not require anything further of them except that they continue to hold on to their faith. Same for us today. Maybe being a Christian for you is difficult enough in your family, in your workplace, at school, or among friends. And Jesus knows this, and he just simply says to you, stay faithful, hold on. That's all I'm asking of you. Hold on to your love, hold on to your faith, hold on to your ministry, hold on to your patience, and keep on increasing your works. The message is, hold on. Don't be misled by people who sin. Test everything to make sure that it's in accordance with the Bible. Be a faithful believer. And in the end, when Christ returns to set up his kingdom, you will rule over nations with a strong, loving hand because Jesus will give you power and authority. That's your reward. So may we listen and pay attention to what Jesus says in these letters, and that is, persevere through your suffering because of your faith and do not be afraid. Do not compromise. Don't live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Seek the sanctifying work of God in your life and seek the enabling power of God's spirit in your life to live holy and upright lives that are pleasing to Christ. And thirdly, do not be misled into any sort of sexual impurity or sin, but rather hold on, test everything, and remain faithful. If after hearing what Jesus has said to these churches, you are convicted on something in your life, before you participate in the Lord's Supper, this is your moment to just take a few minutes, repent, get right with the Lord so that he can sanctify you, so that his Holy Spirit can purify you, and then enable you to live lives that are pleasing to him so that we do not come under any kind of condemnation from Christ. Amen.